0: Thanks for joining us today at Mentor Wargaming Labs, the podcast. Today, I have invited back Bob from Nevada.
1: Hi, everybody. Glad to be back. Glad to come in and talk wargaming with y'all.
0: And so, Bob, we did a player spotlight on you just because you've been playing f- games for a long time and you've gone down the route of making yeah. your own games. But when you mentioned to me that you were actually going to host like a big water loop game, uh, Game. I, I wanted to bring you back and ask you, how did the game go?
1: It went beyond my expectations. Um, we ended up getting an absolute historical result down to within 10% level of the casualties that actually happened in the battle, which just thrills me to no end since we were using the rules that I wrote. And that's just a validation to me that they work correctly. Um, a little bit of background on the game. I've run a lot of these big games. I do build a lot of terrain boards. I didn't do a terrain board for this one simply because it takes months to build and $300 plus in, in materials to put together. So I just did it the best I could on my 4 by 8 table, excuse me, 6 by 8 table, and it, it looked really good. I was pretty close on the terrain and the distances between terrain features, so I was satisfied with it. And I'm 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 a terrain Nazi, and I'm pretty. Pretty rough on myself to get the terrain right. Um, And we started off with a historical deployment at 1130, which is when Napoleon did his first attack because the the status of the ground prevented him. Because it was muddy, it rained all night from really attacking at nine o'clock in the morning was what he wanted to attack. So we started off and let the players do their thing. What really surprised me the most was Waterloo is probably one of the most wrote about battles in the Napoleonic period, most dissected battle there is. And any historian of all, any caliber, knows the mistakes the French made, the mistakes the British made. And I thought it was hilarious in this battle that the French made every single same mistake that they did in the real battle and got a historical result of the French army being crushed.
0: So what? um, how long did it take to run the game?
1: We ran it over a two-day period simply because I'm no longer able at my age to play the 10, 12, 13, 14 marathon hour sessions that I used to do when I was younger. I'm good for about six hours max, and then I'm worn out and tired, especially if I'm having to run most of the charts for new players. So we played it over a two-hour period, over about maybe, I'd say, 10 and a half hours of playtime.
0: Okay. What scale was it at since you were playing on the 6x8? The scale is
1: we were using 15-millimeter figures, and the scale was one inch equals 80 yards of actual ground scale, and one figure equals 100 actual men.
0: Now, um, did you take the job of the referee, or did you play on the side? Okay. No,
1: I did not play on the side, although I did move some of the Prussians just to help the Prussian player move the troops when they came in. And Initially, I played Napoleon simply because I, I I didn't want the French player to commit the guard on the first turn, <laughs> which I've seen happen before in games.
0: Okay, How, how many players on each side?
1: Um, we had two allied players playing the main allied army, two French players playing the main French army, and another player who was their new player watching and learning who played the Prussians, which came in a little later. So he got a chance to Watch
0: and follow through the rules a little bit, and learn the rules a little bit before you actually hit the some Figures. Okay. Now, from that perspective, how much was coordination going on uh, between the players there? Because um, I've seen, like, when we I've done like um, uh, Flames of War, okay, and, I, and Team Yankee, of where you do um, eight people on each side,
1: and yeah, you're technically
0: that's a, that's a nightmare. Well, you know, someone's got to shout and you go and then got to make sure that the person actually does it. But it comes down to the issue of where it doesn't matter if there's eight people on each side, you're just facing off against the person straight across from you. I mean, you might shoot a guy who comes too close to like your T-60s, but um, there's no real coordination because why? I mean, you're faced off with the guy you're going to fight
1: Well, in this game, I I allow the players to talk freely among themselves because in the rules I use, I have built in command control where granted the player has a helicopter view of the battlefield and he can see everything happening. But his avatar, who is the figure, say, for example, is Wellington, his avatar on the field has a command rating and he can do X amount of orders per turn based on his command rating until he fails one. So... The command control is vitally important to to the rules because I put a time factor in it. For example, Wellington wants to give an order to Uxbridge to advance his cavalry. And Uxbridge happens to be 23 inches away, which at one inch equals 80 yards, that's a pretty good distance. So with that time factor, Napoleon, Wellington issues the order, you measure the distance to the command figure, and that comes in with four time factors, okay? During the course of the turn, at the the phase where it comes into the divisional commander phase, he gets to roll off those time factors. And he can sometimes take two off in a given turn if he's got a very good high rating or not. But on the average, with four time factors, it's going to take you two hours before you can activate that unit to move. That's the distance that the courier has to ride. Does he get there in time? Does he get lost? When he delivers the order, can the guy I don't know what this is, I can't read this, take it back and get this confirmed, which happens. So we built that into command and control so that I don't mind that the players are talking among themselves. They can only issue a set number of orders and there is a built-in command delay time factor into the rules to make it a realistic game. For example, uh, at the Battle of Friedland, there was a Russian corps deployed about 1500 yards away from the uh, Russian army commander. Russian Army commander wanted that quarter dance advance, gave the order. It took three hours before the corps started to move. We tried to build that into the game. Does that answer the question?
0: Yeah. So another question I have is um, I've heard talk about command and control. So there's that issue of like um, a corps commander talking to division commander and it works its way down to a battalion. Game of command.
1: And we yeah. rigidly enforce that.
0: Now, so when you did your breakdown, what, what was the smallest tactical you, you were moving around? Was it a regiment, a battalion? A regiment. Okay. It was a
1: regiment, usually consisting of anywhere from 1,200 men to 2,400 men, give or take. Okay. Real soldiers. So. Each figure was one, so a regiment of 12 men is 12 figures. A regiment of 24 men, well, that's 24 figures. And we're not really concerned as much about the formations because we're on a regimental level and each block of troops represents multiple battalions. And that's figured Um, into
0: the rules. So I always find that interesting because I think, you know, one of the war game soldiers and strategies podcasts I was listening to, they actually caught onto something. So not a lot of people do the old style, um, DNC drill and ceremony. Um, So at, at my alma mater, we actually had to learn to march in that old style. Yes. And so something that gets lost is when you're at um, trying to march at the old company level. So when I would go out um, with the Corps, we marched in platoons, so three ranks of 10. So one corporal, nine cadets, and there'd be the platoon commander and the um, master sergeant. And they had and they walked at specific areas to make sure the platoon moved. There is one parade a year that we did of where we marched in the old company style, so okay. where the whole company would get together, and that's a ten-man front. Correct. And so there is a big difference when you're in the three by ten front marching as platoon. You know, marching in column is very easy. The corporals will just guide you where you need to go. If you need to, a guy in front of you, yeah, you're good to go. Um, but when you got to go to left flank and you got to march ten man wide that becomes a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. Now, when you take to the old company style block, the 10 by 10, and you've got to do a wheel. I don't think people really understand what goes into making a 10, a 10 front wheel look right and actually to do it right and not to actually break down. And so when you start stacking those up of like all the different calls the uh, regimental commander and the battalion commander have to do to just move all the companies around. It actually takes a while <laughs> to it actually issue time. those calls. It takes
1: time. Now, the, the point we try to do is each turn is a 30-minute turn. So a lot can happen in the 30-minute turn. But we realistically put, we, we divide the movement up into three different levels. We're either on campaign column, maneuver column, or deployed, or deployed. And deployed movement is when you're actually deployed for battle. And it's a lot slower than marching in a campaign column. So we break that down, especially on a road. You can't use a road if you're deployed. You don't get any effect because you're advancing in the French a column of divisions, which is two companies wide by three companies deep. You're talking about maybe 180 men wide in each you know, in those two companies in the front, and the two companies behind them, and the two companies behind them, and it's inflexible. It's difficult to deploy Now they were trained to form square, and they were also trained to form line. The, the more elite troops, but most of the troops, column formation is what they fought in because that's what they knew how to do. And doing anything else than that was was rather difficult and took time and effort to do.
0: Because. If you've ever run into like an obstacle, well, especially in one of the 10 man company block formations, you'll see like this ripple. Oh yeah, it's like um, if there's some monument that you walk into or something, there's this ripple effect as people compress. So it's like water flowing that that guy's got to go somewhere. So he'll just like step left or right. So you get disordered.
1: What we try to do in the game is if obstacles are in there, we call them linear obstacles. And if you have to cross a linear obstacle, you will get disordered unless you pass a discipline check to not get disordered and you will slow down and lose movement by crossing these obstacles. We, On a game that's one turn equals 30 minutes and one figure equals 100, we've abstracted a lot in there because we're playing at a much higher level than a battalion level game. And I think the most difficult thing I had yesterday and the day before with the players was dragging them up out of the weeds and understanding that they are not maneuvering Volkswagens, they can't cross in front of each other they can't you know go you know cross over each other's line of march and things like that that they don't see on the field they just see this block of figures and they're not understanding that a block of figures has a tail and a zone of operation that if you cross over another one you'll get confused and mix it up yeah. and that's just something you got to explain to
0: them well you know i i think how did you handle saying having veteran troops versus green troops? So what are, I...
1: each block of troops, i.e. regiment, has a combat value. For example, your average French line under my rules is a combat value of seven. The old guard or a combat value of 14. British infantry or a combat British infantry are a combat value of eight. British guards are a combat value of 10. So for example, we have different charts. French line of seven meets a British guard of 10 in an attack in normal terrain. The French are rolling on the chart at a minus three. So they have to roll a lot better to achieve a result that they would have a better opportunity if they were fighting against another seven. And that's how we validate more veteran troops. And Dutch Belgian militia were fives. So we rate everybody in a, in a rating so that you, you can understand who is a superior, more disciplined elite force.
0: Well, so that's sort of the thing I found, like when we would do marching and parades is like um, the new cadets weren't allowed to integrate with the upperclassmen. They were kept in their separate formations until like four months in. Then they could march with us. And so there's actually this I found there's a mentality by. um of you learn how to respond to the commands. So there's actually mm-hmm. a situation where I had to put on like the officer Shako and like the belt and carry the sword. And I kept on asking the other cadet officers, like, how do I do this? You need like because <laughs> I was officer of the guard one day, and we have like this special little parade we do for that. And it was like, Can you give me the printout? And said, Oh, you'll be fine, just do this, this, and this. Like I really need to memorize this. Where are you and they're buddy? like, <laughs> well, they said, but James, you've been on the other side for four years, like marching oh, out the it, gate, marching in the gate. Right. It's like, but you're, and I messed it up. So I've, okay. I it's missed a work. step. And you know, this is like open ranks. So everyone's spread out. I forgot to close them back down and march them back in the gate. And like, so we got dinged on that by the TAC officer. But what I explained to him, is so like you realize I've, I've been a cadet private for four years. I'm not actually paying attention to what you're doing. I'm paying you attention say, to what I'm doing. <laughs> you say right shoulder arms. I know where the rifle goes. In the big picture of things, I am, I am in another world right now. I'm well, thinking I understand about other what stuff. You're saying.
1: When I was in college in ROTC, I was a member of the Persian Rifles. So I did drill team, I did drill organization, and I had I can market company and platoon and everything like that. But that's a whole different animal. But in the Foyangs, the thing that I found about the Waterloo game that I really, from me, from my standpoint as a historian, liked the best is we actually recreated the British cavalry charge and it rode for it. It was on the other side of La Hassan instead of against the Arlan and it destroyed. Two French divisions that had been shot up by fighting against the British and taken up and drove them off the field in one turn, just like the British heavy cavalry did in the game. And I thought that was just phenomenal. I mean, that's, that's, you know, uh, that, 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 that's good for my
0: soul. I couldn't even imagine how you do a cavalry troop, like the drill that you need into that because.
1: Well, once it, it's cavalry Napoleonics is was very interesting. Everybody thinks they're all in these neat lines and lined up shoulder to shoulder, you know, and that once the order to advance was given and charge was sounded. They just came forward as a block of a mob. (laughs) And then it turned into a cavalry scrum and horses have wills of their own. And the thing we try to simulate in the world I'm using is that cavalry has a finite limit to how long they can fight because the horses get blown. They get tired and they're now next to useless. So we rate every major formation, i.e. division that has a formation cohesion level. And as things happen, as charges happen, you deduct that formation cohesion level. And that's something that you add into the combat value when you do it. So the lower that gets, the less effective they get. And we find that infantry divisions under these rules can probably be in combat for about two hours before they burn out in the poor So And that's historical. That's about right. When you do study and you figure out how long they actually stayed in the combat, especially in a town fighting, you can even burn out much quicker because the casualties are just horrendous, especially when the town catches on fire and everything. And I've tried to make that. Now, my rules are a simulation. They are not. So they are complex, I guess is the word I want to see. You know, we're talking 14 pages of charts to do this game. Now, every stage of the game, and the key is you must do the sequence of play religiously, or weird things happen. And for every change in the sequence of play, another step. You just turn the page, next page, turn the page. So you're only dealing with one page in front of you at any one given time. It takes a while to learn the rules. The more experienced you are with the rules, you can do your own charts, and the game flows.
0: Infinitely faster.
1: If I have to run to church for a whole game of four players, we're going to be there a while, and then I get burned out after four hours of that.
0: Well, so I think the idea of like with infantry, people can understand green to veteran troops, Correct. and from my experience, that comes down to just to ability to understand what orders to follow, how to follow them, and you know your NCOs keeping in line. Okay, now on your cavalry rules. I mean there is a difference between dragoons, light cavalry, Correct. heavy cavalry, because historically there was a height and weight difference on the Correct. breeds of horses.
1: Absolutely. Did
0: heavy you capture that be
1: light cavalry for the most part?
0: Because I know well, did you capture that granularity? Because like the light cavalry is supposed to be that skirmisher reconnaissance and the heavy By cavalry. Well, we
1: captured for it, a symbol. Let's take a brigade of French crossier, heavy cavalry. We have two factors. We have a combat value rating. And a letter number that equates to their ability to pass discipline checks, maneuver, and do more commands, you know, of keeping, you know, keeping formations and things like that. So the higher letter, they're much better at passing a discipline check when a discipline check is required to A, stop charging and recover, or B, to charge. And the, the number rating, for example, we rank French Cossier in 11, and I'd rank your average Chasseurs, which is your average little line cavalry, seven. So in a combat, the, you have the 11, or he's a plus four over the seven, and he's fresh, he's got a four, formation cohesion level, so he becomes a 14, and even if the Chasseurs are fresh, they become an 11, you know, or a, a seven and a four is an 11, so the Crossier or three higher on the chart, and normally will beat up on lighter cavalry, and that's how we handle that. And it works I mean, pretty well. Well, I mean, because
0: well, I, mean, I imagine, it, I think it's very rare that horse on horse actually hit each other, but you know, you well, got a couple, got a couple yeah. hands on another horse, you'll knock them. Yeah, to the and side. it's
1: in the crossier. They're wearing breastplates and helmets. An average chasseur is wearing a cloth jacket. And a felt Shaco made of baby of leather. There's an advantage, and the crossier's got a very large, straight broadsword, and the chasseur's got a lightsaber. In a boot-to-boot fight, that crossier's a lot tougher because he's a lot harder to kill. He's got armor on, yeah. and and we try to rate that by the things. And I'm incredibly knowledgeable. Of the period. So I'm able to look at the different qualities and give them a rating and just keep the ratios consistent throughout the game. And in fact, in the rules I wrote, I actually wrote an addendum to them that rates every type of cavalry, every type of infantry unit type by year of the Napoleonic War. And you can break it in you know, maybe about four or five different periods. You know, 1801, 1805, 1806, 1809, and so on. And we, we rate them in that period, so it keeps within a historical standpoint, and and that's something that the role designer has to do, because your average person who maybe only marginally knowledgeable period might have a hard time doing.
0: So at a certain point, do you have the Scots Greys like on the table? Will fold like a cheap absolutely.
1: suit? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Scots Greys are on the table. They're part of the household brigade. No, uh, sorry, Union brigade. I'm sorry, yeah. part of the Union brigade. And yeah, in fact. They performed absolutely miserably in this battle, to tell you the truth. They covered themselves with not glory. (laughs) They made one charge and they just kind of rode up, made a charge, rode into, tried to, attempted to rally, but of course being British Cavalry, that was an utter failure. And kept on going and rode right into the front of a French grand battery of 64 12 pound guns. It wasn't
0: good for the regiment. We haven't talked about artillery. How did you handle artillery on the table? Artillery,
1: what we do, for example, since it's a higher level game than a battalion level game, we can amalgamate batteries. We we call them stands of artillery. Stand of artillery has four gunners and a gun. Let's say it's a 12 pound battery. Every figure on that stand has three points. If it's a medium gun, six pounder, every figure has two points. If it's a nine pound battery, well, kind of halfway between, we just give the standard nine pounders an extra point. we have two points per stand with an extra two points. So based on your number of points, and it makes it very much easier. Um, hold one. For example, I'm just going to flash this. I'm not going to show it. This is the artillery chart. I don't know how well this can be seen. But this number thing up here is Based on a die roll, based on the number of artillery points you have, and there's a casualty number in there. So, for example, I have 12. Let's say I have three stands of artillery, 12 punters. That gives me 36 points. I can take that 36 points and break them up as two rolls of 18 on the 15 to 18 table. And then you have a result based on your roll, based on the modifiers, the nationality modifiers of French or the terrain effects of whether there's mud, there's a minus to your roll you get a role and in that cross-reference of the role, you get a number of hits that you have applied to the other unit. And it seems to work fairly well. And it makes it so that we've abstracted the artillery to a point where you're using points instead of actual guns. And It works really, it's very fast. And that was the idea make it as fast as we possibly can during the artillery
0: phase. Oh.
1: Like that. I wrote these 25 years ago and they had 25 years of play testing.
0: <laughs> well, so let me ask you, if you were if someone wanted to get into napoleonic war gaming okay how would you go about doing that what what would you recommend um because i know when i if i just google it like knowing what i know now like just off you know playing games workshop warlord games i would know well there's warlord games has a 28 millimeter or i could go to like um two fat Lardies has sharps practice that's all I'm really aware of. But how
1: I recommend a player who's new to Napoleonics, doesn't know a, a whole lot about the period, go into what I call the beer and pretzel style of gaming to get somewhat used to the period. So you can understand that oh, this is a line infantryman, this is a guard infantryman, this is a chasseur cavalry, this is a crossier heavy cavalry. So you can understand what the figures are. And those are rules, for example, Osprey makes a set of rules called Rebels and Patriots. And they make another little higher set of rules called a Black Powder. Very good way to get into that gaming. And you don't necessarily have to use 28 millimeter figures, you can 15 millimeter figures. And the scale doesn't matter as long as you're consistent. 15 millimeter figures are cheaper. You can buy more of them. Um, But getting into that, just to push the letter around a little bit, to get a general idea of how the game works. And that's a good start. And by getting that start and getting your interest up a bit, then you need to go and do a little reading and a little research. And believe me, there's a lot more books out there by a thousand than ever were when I first started. When I first started doing Napoleonics, the first book I read was Chandler's Campaign of Napoleon. In fact, hold on for a minute. I brought a couple of books along just so I could. Example. For example, Chandler's Campaign of Napoleon. book, But it will teach you a lot about Napoleonics that maybe you never knew. Now, getting into the game also requires either having a friend who has the miniatures or you going out and acquiring miniatures and building up an army. How do you do that? Well, you have to either paint them yourself or have someone paint them for you. For example, you want books like this that have our Osprey books that have color photos and pictures of what the soldiers looked like which is a very good painting guide to give you an idea how to get into the game. And from that, you can start to acquire an interest in getting your own armies. And the best, and Napoleonics is probably the most complex period to war game. It all, it's also the prettiest. The uniforms are gorgeous. And they're in the to paint. They're hard to paint because uniforms are gorgeous and have a lot of detail. <laughs> but doing that, Getting involved in a group, a club, or a group of friends, you know, whatever you want to call it. And if you all want to play Napoleonics, have each person build a different army for a start. That way, you have an opportunity to put on on the board the different armies of the period. And the more you get into it, the longer you're into it. Well, I've got French. You know, I want to build an Austrian army just so I can do some stuff myself. That's my recommendation on how to get into the hobby. I have 12,000 15 millimeter Napoleonics, but that took me a lifetime to put that together.
0: Well, let let me ask you. So let's say I get like 15 millimeter. Now I understand the paint jobs are going to change from, because the wars last for so long on there.
1: And uniforms change during the period.
0: Okay. Well, my idea is that at the 15 millimeter scale, can I do like Republic French and late empire French? Well, are the uniforms close enough?
1: Um. Well, yes and no. Uh, as far as the colors go, blue coats, white pants, you know, gray black packs, yes. The only difference was at before 1807 and before, the French army wore bicorns for the most part. After 1807, 1808 on up, they went to the Shaco. And that's your only difference. But if you want to use Vicar and French for later period games because that's what you've got, have at it. And anybody that tells you that, oh, that's not correct, is a snob. And put the figures on the board and roll dice and have fun with them.
0: So my, my thoughts is, I didn't know, because I know when, do like World War II war gaming, there's, the usual breakdown is early war, mid war, late war. And mm-hmm. that's how most game companies try to capture.
1: Well, they want um, to sell more figures, too. So that, yeah, like, more figures they're, they're putting out there, the more they're selling. And, and believe me, Games Workshop does that a lot. <laughs>
0: well, i, I think thinking of like um, Battlefront with Flames of War and Bolt Auction also follow that. Um, they break down the war into three periods. Uniforms
1: um, don't change that much, though, in World War II. Yeah. Especially if you're uh, playing with 15s, it's hard to see that. Oh, these guys got a helmet that's a little you know, more shaped in the back than the guys in the front. <laughs> Big deal. Just play with fingers.
0: Well, that's why I didn't know if there was a, simpler, uh, a similar distinction in Napoleonic. Is the uniforms like,
1: have changed a lot. For example, let's look at the Austrian army. In 1805, which was when the French fought the Austrians, and earlier before that, the French fought the Austrians constantly throughout the whole Napoleonic Wars. The Austrian infantry were wearing helmets leather helmets. After 1807, they went to the Shaco. I can guarantee you at the Battle of Vagram, half of the Austrian infantry were still wearing helmets. Guarantee you. <laughs> so yeah. you could use them the whole way through without any problem whatsoever at all.
0: Well it's um you know that's a common thing you see on like uh when they do period pieces on like television, no mm-hmm. matter what, it's like they open up like a catalog from like 1966 and they make everything look like a catalog. And it's like, even today you can go to offices with furniture from 20 years ago. So it's like any point in time you pick, you need something from like 30 years ago because it's gonna hung around because it hasn't fallen apart yet. Of course,
1: course. and and Hollywood's pretty awful at at getting historical accuracy done. Um, The movie Waterloo with Rod Steiger did a pretty darn good job on the uniforms because they were using a lot of the uniforms left over from the Russian War and Peace they did. They did a pretty darn good job on those. And um, the movie, The Duelist, which was in a poetic setting movie, the uniforms were exquisitely done. And as the years went on, they changed the uniforms fit the time. And but if you're playing miniatures, you know, who, who cares? <laughs> you're not doing a Hollywood movie. Put the figures, put what figures you've got on the board to play the game you want to play and have fun with it.
0: Okay. Um, So I think a lot of like the bigger war games where you're trying to play at a uh, division brigade level use 15 millimeters and you do like an abstraction. Um, I mentioned Sharp's practice. Which seems um, more of like the skirmish game, and it seems to be based it is on a bird. It is a
1: skirmish game, basically. Yeah,
0: but it's based on like a TV show. That's why it's. I know. With the name guy named Sharp, but do the you? The one
1: in the Napoleonic War, by the way. Yeah, single-handedly,
0: <laughs> like with his trusty rifle. No, that I've
1: often said when I write my definitive novel, which is never going to happen, in the Napoleonic Wars, my French hero will stride forward across the battlefield and stride across this dead figure of a British rifleman. He will reach down and rifle the man's pockets and pull out a watch. And on the watch will be the word sharp. He'll put it in his pocket and move on.
0: <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure when we do the, uh, the American version of uh, sharp rifles, it'll be like Rat Patrol of where it'll okay. actually be a, he'll be an American in reality. Of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of course.
1: But yeah, there's three levels of games and you, you hit upon it. There's a skirmish level game where you don't need a lot of figures. To play a skirmish level game, and it's a great way to get into the hobby. Then you move up to what I call beer and pretzel level game, where you're having small units of 12 to 15 figures, and maybe having eight to 10 units per side on the game. Game's over in three four hours, you all had a good time, go drink beer. You get up to what I call a battalion level game using 15 million. There's a lot of those out there, you know, Empire, um, Legacy of Glory, um, Shaco innumerable numbers of games that fight the unit is a battalion and your limitations are you're not going to fight waterloo on a battalion level inside of 40 hours of play uh, and a dozen players on each side so you're limited to fighting smaller actions or parts of a larger battle i like to do the larger battles I, I gravitated from those battalion level rules and games to the larger set where I want to fight the whole battle, where I want to fight Waterloo, where I want to fight Borgino. I want to fight water and that's like a monster more monster than Borgino or I want to fight different Austrians. You just keep naming the battles that you want to do. I want to do those and see if I can recreate history.
0: Oh, and, uh, So I think that's a good place. So uh, Waterloo is like your pinnacle when you're doing Napoleonic gaming. Of course, it's, it's like, the
1: most detailed written about battle there is, on the point what sort is,
0: is there a Napoleonic campaign, like if someone was starting out and they bought like a copy of black powder okay. and they said, you know, I'm not ready to do, you know, multi-divisions, cores against okay. each other. Sure. Um, is mm. there a campaign you'd recommend out there? Like if you say what, like something small. Because uh, I'm thinking something like the Spanish, the Spanish. I mean, the Spanish should Spain, be... Spain
1: had smaller armies in it, and you could do a campaign. Now, there's two ways to do a campaign. And the most exquisite way to do it is, and it takes a lot of people, is I call it a e- play-by-email campaign, where you have two people who are the moderators of the campaign. Everybody in the campaign has been given a map. Everybody in the campaign has been given an order of battle they have. And you do your orders by email to the dungeon master, let's use that for a word, who's running the campaign. And then he'll send an email back to you with what you've seen, what you've done. And then when a battle happens, you get together and fight it out. And it puts a tremendous amount of fog of war in the game and is, is pro- I've only done one of those in my life. And I think that was, I had more fun doing that than I've done anything else in any kind of other campaign. The other type of campaign is, let's do the Waterloo campaign, for example. You fight all the ba- historical battles that happened in the Waterloo campaign and see if you can do better in each battle. Then the other type is, let's say, the Waterloo campaign again. You start out with the armies maneuvering, and then you fight the battles as they happen, seeing if you can resolve and You may not get the Waterloo. You may not fight it Ligny. You may have other battles along the way. And then there's small campaigns. I have a, I'm a division commander. I have a division and I am involved in a campaign, but we only fight out the stuff that I, my division actually gets into. So if I'm maneuvering and I run into an enemy division, we do a divisional divisional game. And that's a way to do a small game. And what campaign would I recommend? That's a tough question. Waterloo is a good one because it's very, it's knowledgeable orders of battle wise. And people know a lot about it. And there's a whole lot of articles and books written about it. So it's very easy to do the research to find out. Um, and in a campaign like that, you would just, your losses would then be carried over to your next action. You never, and it gives you a reason to fight a battle or, boy, I am really outnumbered here. I'm not going to fight this battle. I'm going to withdraw because I'll lose my whole division here. And, and, and that gives a little more general shift to the campaign. Um, is that kind of what you were
0: looking for? I'm not sure. Yeah, Well, I was trying to think of like, as you build your collection, you might not be able to, um, and you're doing it say like a regimental level mm-hmm. um, of where like, so you're trying to build a stand. Okay. Um, I get that slice like, okay, I'm going to be a division commander. Cause that's similar to like what bolt action and um, Warhammer 40 K do. It's like, you might only have 40 guys, but it's just a slice. There's more guys to your right, more guys to your left. They're just not here right now. <laughs>
1: Correct. And you can just tune that out. That's going on somewhere else. And just concentrate on your action. And I play Warhammer 40K. k You know, I went out and bought a Warhammer 40K army because everybody around here has got them and plays them. And I didn't have one. So I thought, well, I'll join the group and, and do it. And I understand that. And usually, if to do things like that, you've got to have a club or at least a group of friends that have similar interests that you can get together on a, one weekend a month or whenever and get the games in play. You know, I don't run big battles very often. I've only run two large battles this year so far. I've done Borodino, and now I've done Waterloo. And I usually get burned out after doing <laughs> one of the big ones. It takes me a while to recover before I the thought, you yeah, know, maybe I want to do another one here.
0: Well, how long does it take uh, to set up for one of those big battles? A long time. Um, Got to build the terrain first. You must
1: do research into the orders of battle and create the orders of battle. You must then rate all of the different troops with their ratings. And the way I deal with this, because I can just look at a figure out there and I know the Battle of Waterloo and say, oh, that's a French line infantry and this is a 7 Well, A lot of gamers can't do that. So what I end up having to do is get... Return, mail, labels. And I load them into Word, and I type the unit that it is with a CV value, and then I mark every stand with that label. That takes time and effort. I would say Waterloo took me 30 hours, give or take, preparation to put the game on.
0: How long did it take you to clean up afterwards? <laughs> I
1: haven't cleaned up yet. still over there staring at me I will probably not clean up for it'll take me the rest of the week and I'm actually going to set it back up again because I'm going to set it back up so that I can either do it solo or with somebody else over several periods of time because I want to see if I can get a different result I want to see if I can actually have the French win the battle and I don't know the answer to that I don't know if they can do that but I'd like to see if I could
0: well, I think that's why I asked you about the artillery, because I didn't know if when you set up the battle, did you do it historically or yes. did you? OK, so you didn't say, all right, let me put the guards here and let me move all my artillery to the left. Let me keep the line the same, but I'm how I deploy the guys on the line differently.
1: Everything was done historically with the actual deployments on the actual spot that they were. That's how I set it up.
0: Because hey, I know a lot of games, like Star Wars Legion, they said, you know, it's one in the deployment phase. Like, if right. you can deploy you can right.
1: Roll your dice and see who gets to deploy first. And yeah. Second. yeah. I set it up completely myself that it was all done historically. Because if I'm going to try to recreate history of a battle, I have to do it that way. If not, I'm doing a what if. You know, I mean, if you want to do a what if, then you have to do random deployment. When do the Prussians show up? Well, that's random. Does the French under Grouchet show up at the actual battle, well, that's going to be random too. And I was attempting to see if I could A, recreate history with the battle, and two, if I could change history and see if the French could win. Well, they sure didn't win in the game we played this past weekend. They were routed just like they did in the historical battle. Once the guard was broken, the entire army flaked. And the guard got broken. They sent them forward unsupported, just like they did historically, and they got slaughtered.
0: Like, you know, that that makes me think of um, some of the medieval battles of where you'd have guys on campaigns for months, you know, during the fighting season in between the growing seasons or whatever. Guys go out in the army and they'll like meet up, stare at each other and say, you know what? We didn't do the deployment phase right. Let's all go home and like (laughs) let's just head back. It's not worth it. It's like.
1: For example, let's take a medieval battle, let's take the Battle of Agincourt, which is people are pretty familiar with that, where the French, with large superiority of mounted cavalry, fighting a sick, depleted English army. In fact, dysentery was so rife for the English army that a lot of the soldiers did not wear anything below the waist. Because they had to defecate while they were standing there in line. And that sounds disgusting if you could imagine the stink, the smell of, a, of an army of eight or nine thousand men with maybe half of them with dysentery. And because of the wet field and the English longbow, the smaller army prevailed. But campaigning is, especially in those days, was a matter of whose army has eaten well, whose army is less sick than the other one, you know, whose army is a little more better supplied. Usually, logistics wins
0: wars. Well, I, I think what's the saying? Um, novices talk about tactics. Uh, something talks about logistics, because there's you know, the two, and,
1: and that's true. Logistics wins. You know, tactics, strategy, a and discipline win battles. Logistics wins wars.
0: Well, I think um, there's the two great books: uh, Supplying War and Logistics in War. That. Yeah, yeah, Supplying War is really good. Excellent book, um, and you know, I think he dedicated a whole chapter to Napoleon
1: mm-hmm. and like I the mean, I war. F- I read it, but yes.
0: Yeah. So before Napoleon, it was where did you locate your um, the garrison houses? Because garrison was all the food was. And
1: your supply depots and your, yeah. your, your your arsenals where you had your food. Well, do you know why one of the reasons in 1812? The French army were so decimated on the retreat from Russia. One was the winter was a big effect. But two, when they advanced on their route to Moscow, they stripped the country bare by foraging. Unfortunately, when they retreated, they retreated along the same route they advanced, which they had already stripped bare, and there was nothing there for them to steal, eat, or forage from. And that was one of the one of the big reasons why they took. And there's, there had a depot at Smolensk, which the first couple of divisions got there, ran amok, destroyed everything, stole everything. And so by the time the rest of the French army got there, there was nothing to eat.
0: But, but that was the, that was the innovation of Napoleon of like, well,
1: let me just live army. off the country. Court army, live off the country. Well, that works great until you have to retreat across the same country, stripped bare on the way there.
0: <laughs> yeah. But it allowed, like, the range of engagement changed in yeah. scale. Because come every
1: on. corps was its own little army and advanced yeah. along its own axis and was always within supporting range of the other one. And they could combine quickly for a battle. Yeah. And they were able to forage. Napoleon was a master of that. Although he did, at one time, offer a million franc prize to anyone that could come up with a way to preserve food for six to eight months. He didn't have canned foods, didn't have MREs, but he offered a huge price because he knew how important it was to feed you guys. Army marches on its stomach and fights on its stomach.
0: Well, so I I will say um, years ago, like when Food Network first came out, they actually Mm -hmm. talked about that, like how canned food was made. Yeah. Like every can was made by hand. Right. So all the lids had to be made by hand and sealed by hand. So. They I can supply understand. supply
1: a 120,000-man army that way very, very much food doing that.
0: It, it costs $100 to make that can of food right
1: there. You know, and, and that was just it. Napoleon was desperate for a way to supply his army with a rentable, non-perishable food source that they could drag on their wagons and bring along with them and issue out as rations to the groups of to the soldiers. And they never really got that down the path. You know, each regiment had its own bakeries and things like that, but you got to have flour to make bread, you know, and the army moves on its stomach and that's always been a reality.
0: Well, could you see that in a campaign system? Sure, of, absolutely. Because you could, you could carry those modifiers into the game there. because
1: so, because an army that's not well supplied, all their combat values would drop. They're... Formation cohesion values of the units would drop, and you'd you do that. And say, well, you guys aren't well supplied, so we're going to degrade your army's effectiveness because you're not supplied very well. And you do that in doing a campaign. We also have to have somebody that runs a campaign that does that. My good friend Matt Delamatter, who is my co-author on my rules, and my editor, who's taking forever to get anything done, <laughs> <laughs> has written a campaign set. It's very good. And it, it takes all those different things into effect.
0: Well, so let me ask you about your rules. Any idea, like how, how long of a rule set is it? Like, how many uh, pages? Yeah, how many pages there?
1: I think it's about 90 to 110 pages long, I think, last time I looked. The actual written rules, there's 14 pages of charts that you need to play the game. And that sounds like a lot, and it is and you need to take a while to learn it. But as I said, each phase of the game, each sequence of play has a phase. And on that phase, you have a little binder in front of you. Binder, each phase, you turn the page. Next phase, you turn the page. So you're only looking at one page at a time for the phase of the game you're going on. So it makes it a little simpler now. Getting people to learn that and do that takes a while. I estimate that it takes four times playing the rules before you can really reliably run your own charts without help. It takes time to train people. And the more they learn, can run their own charts, the faster the game's gonna run. When I don't have to sit here and have four people playing and run the charts for every action that's going on on the board, that slows things down horribly you know, we can speed it up a hell of a lot if the two guys are running their own charts against each other It goes three times as fast actually
0: well and that's the variation between that's that's the variance between the beer and pretzel game All and right. uh, the higher ed simulation games and Is I that love the beer-, beer and
1: pretzel games I'd love to have an afternoon for or four hours to play a game in a beer and pretzel game <laughs> I love to do that simpler, the better sometimes
0: yeah so I know uh, I have lost a lot of time on um, table lookups there. So absolutely.
1: And know, and it's I, I can do them in my in my sleep with my eyes closed. You know, people I'll look, I'll look at the comments, say, Oh, you're a plus three, you're a plus four, roll the dice. You know, and but then I wrote the darn things and I've been playing these things for 25 plus years, maybe longer. I've been playing Napoleonics ever since I've been in college, and I'm 67 years old. So I know the period. I've been selling Napoleonic figures that I don't need out of the collection because I, I can't put, you know, I have 3,000 figures of Russians, and my scale one to 100. I can't put that many Russians on the board in mm-hmm. any one given battle. So I've been selling some figures to guys, and they're new to the hobby, and they can't just look at the figure and say, "Oh, that's a russians Pavlov Grenadier." So what I do when I sell the figures, I write a little code on the stand for them, and Put a little page in there that says, okay, N25, well, that's Pavlov Grenadiers and things like that. And they really like that. They really enjoy that. And I've got guys, in, and as I said, it makes it easier on my wife because when I die, she's going to have to figure out what to do with this collection. <laughs> Hope to God she doesn't sell it for what I told her I paid for it. <laughs> So
0: you, you, you never know. You might get the Viking burial, like buried in your miniatures and set on fire.
1: <laughs> oh, Christ. <laughs> yeah. sell to somebody else. At worst, give them away and let somebody else enjoy the hobby a little bit.
0: No, I understand. I, I had to do that with my Battletech mechs, like right on the bottom, like what era they apply to and what variant they are. So, right.
1: Yeah. And it takes time. Right? It took me like six months to catalog all my Napoleonics. And that was a job. Yeah. And now I've got probably 35,000 plus figures of ancients. World War II, Medievals, Napoleonics, God knows what else, uh, science fiction, Warhammer, you know, yada 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 yada, Star Wars, um, fantasy. And there's no way my wife would walk into the World War II collection and go, oh, those are tiger tanks. She wouldn't have a clue. So, <laughs> you know, that's gonna be an interesting thing someday down the road. As I said, it works, just give the damn things away.
0: Yeah. Uh... So I look at you developing Napoleonic rules there, how are, I how are y'all?
1: For, I hope they're ready for publication by this time next year. And we're okay. going to publish them in a very simple process. We're not going to go out and print 5,000 copies of the rules. There's something out there called Wargamer's Vault. I don't
0: know how promoted. Very familiar with it.
1: <laughs> we are going to put them on Wargamer's Vault and say, give me five bucks for the rules and download them. I'm not looking to make anything on these rules. One, I'm not going to get rich selling Napoleonic rules anyway. Two, I want to put something out there that the hobby can enjoy, players can enjoy, that I think are an accurate representation to the best we can do, since nobody was alive at that time to know what actually happened, of a Napoleonic battle. And so far, I think we've been hitting this thing right on the head. And we've had historical results in almost every big battle I've played, down to within 10% of the actual casualties there. So I'm pleased with that. I can't do any better than that. And have a good time with it. Everybody who played the game had a ball.
0: So random thought out there. So you can do everything from Austritz, Waterloo, Spanish, Nile campaign, Russian invasion?
1: Yep. I, the rules... You know, right now, we're looking for a title for the rules, okay? My working title is called Legacy of Glory Regimental because they are a follow-on to the original Legacy of Glory battalion-level rules. And that's not going to end up being the name for it, but that's just a working title for the moment. They could play anything from probably about, I wouldn't say the Revolution period and the early Republican period, but anything after that all the way up to the end Waterloo, they can they can handle
0: okay well i've i know i've seen so we talked about like something with bolt action of where you take early mid late war and then they have theater books correct and the theater books allow certain units and modifiers so i'm more pacific so okay. every uh so every island has its own like, subtleties it probably, to it. As like, it probably did. I mean, you know. Yeah. There are American a bunch of tanks Marines on this island. An,
1: American <laughs> Marine's going to be an American Marine pretty much throughout most of the war. But every island has its own specific terrain, victory conditions, and things like that.
0: For so, example, look at the UO. So, would it, so when you publish your Napoleonic rules, would it be interesting to do, like, the same thing with theaters? Uh, well, to say like Nile campaign, Italy.
1: I don't know if we're gonna do that. We'll break it down by year, by a period of years, for example. Okay. We'll break it down from like, uh, let's say, 1803 through to 1805, 1806 through 1807, 189 through you know, 1810, 1812 will be its own by itself. And then everything, you have 1813 would be its own, and 1814 would be its own. And then, of course, you have the 1850 campaign. And during in all those periods, the troop types would have different ratings, and the commanders will have different ratings based on the period of the Napoleonic Wars that you're dealing with. We will do that. I've already done that. Okay. Um, as far as a theater, probably not okay well, that's an interesting but that is an interesting thought that i'm gonna have to, have to
0: think about Well, i because I, I think um i think when you see um the beer and pretzel games like bold action they use those theater books as a way to like focus you in so that crunch they give up in the general rule books gets tacked on it's, and it's the also addendums. a way to
1: make it's also a way to sell yeah Unfortunately, <laughs> you know, that's yeah, and, I'm, and don't get me wrong, I'm not opposed to that. I like these people to make money. The more money they're going to make doing it, the more stuff they're going to put out, and that's good for the hobby. I mean, you look yeah. at you know at Warhammer 40k. It just came out with what ninth edition, I think. Yes, yes. And do they do need to do a ninth edition? Did they make enough changes? I don't know. I just I haven't really had a chance to really go through it that much. But most everybody else is probably going to go out and buy it. There'll be a lot of grumbling about things. Oh, they changed my favorite army to this and that. But just roll dice and have fun.
0: Well, you don't worry about that and say, the guard guard regiment used to be so good. (laughs) Now now it's horrible.
1: I don't care. (laughs) Because, like anything else, there's a balance to things. And as long as, you know, I've never been a big one that that I get such a charge out of winning that I have to win. Sure, in a game you'd rather win than lose. But I have had I have so much fun just pushing the figures around rolling dice and sometimes enjoying awful things that happened in the battle. You know, you go, oh, my God, that entire regiment was massacred by that grand battery. Wasn't that cool? Yeah, that's the fun of playing the game. We had in the we did the battle of Ligny. me. Oh, I haven't done it in a couple of years, but I have the boards for me, So it's easy for me to pull it out and do it at one point in the game. The village of St. Armand, which is down on the rivers, gets taken by the French. Well, the Prussians have a division standing sitting up on the hill, and they know they have to go back down and take, down, take that village back. So here comes a turn. The division comes marching down the hill, turns its flank to the Guard Grand Battery to assault the town. Well, in one turn, the Guard Grand Battery, due to the end fire down the flank, kills 2,000 of that division. And that was cool. That was
0: cool to watch that happen. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that's something that gets lost is like uh, the weakness of marksmanship of rifles, but artillery.
1: Your effective range with a smoothbore brown best British musket was about 50 yards. That you could expect, that you could hit a target at that range three out of 10 times. Or four out of ten times, maybe fifty percent. Beyond that, everybody is lined up in a line firing lead down that direction. You may not hit the guy you're aiming at, but you may hit the guy four people down. It's a matter of lead down range. And most of yeah. them didn't even fire their muskets very often. A lot of oh. times they not they, they just were taught how to do it once and ah uh, you'll get to do it later because powder costs money. We're not gonna waste powder to get you guys out to a range shooting. You know, I got to have powder
0: for the battles. Well, it's one of those things when you actually look at like the probability charts of like number of rounds per square foot and like right. casualties resulting. It's like, you know what? We might as well just run up there really fast and stab them. This, <laughs> this isn't working. <laughs>
1: actually, that was most armies of the Napoleonic periods. Theory was to close with the bayonet. And by force of will and force of your impetus forced the other guy to break and run. The British were one of the few armies that actually did practice shooting and they were deployed as a standard in a two-rank line. The French fought in column, rarely ever deployed to fight in line. And As the later the period goes, the less trained the French became, the less able they were able to do that. Now, for example, where they could do it was at the Battle of Austerlitz in 1806 when Marshal Deveux, with about 35,000 men, crushed a Prussian army of about 62,000 and actually double enveloped them with outnumbered 50%, if you can figure that out. Because the French infantry under Davout were so well trained, they could maneuver into column, into line, into square, back to column, back to line, like clockwork. And they were able to crush the Prussian army who could only fight in line at that period in 1806. And that the better trained troops can do that. But as the army's got like in, 18, in 1813, you know, the French conscripts were called Marie-Louise conscripts. These are, you know, 16, 17 year old boys that were drafted, had no training, were trained on the march. And guess what? They didn't know how to do a lot of that. They put them in column, taught them how to march and fight in column, and that was it they could barely farm square and that's how it worked the better trained troops could maneuver and do a lot more but you're right you're limited by the effectiveness of the weapons and the muskets of the period work over 50 yards next to worthless to hit an actual target but a lot of lead down range does hit something
0: (laughs) scatters around all right. Well, I think we'll close it up there on that. Uh, I really enjoy for,
1: talking to you guys.
0: Oh, uh, thanks for telling us about your Waterloo campaign. Let us know when you're doing another
1: I will. Game it's going to be a campaign. while before the hard <laughs> of all the work I put into this wear off so I can have the uh, motivation to do another one.
0: Well, thank you, Bob. And thank you for thank listening, you. listening to this episode of Miniature Working Labs podcast. And we'll see you next time.
1: Super great. Thanks, everybody fly and push that around.